the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special guest, Evangelist Nikki Cruz. He's going to be in town, by the way, speaking Thursday, April the 21st, 7 p.m. at Christian Cathedral. That's at 2433 Coolidge Avenue in Oakland. And then on Sunday, April the 24th at 1 p.m. at Victory Outreach in Hayward. Complete details available at NikkiCruz.org. That's NikkiCruz.org. Dot O-R-G. You were mentioning just before the break, Nikki, about uh, this question of going into um, some of the most dangerous areas that you visited, not only in Argentina, but uh, even in, in France as well. And I think this idea of going into the areas where there is the greatest danger, because quite frankly, there is the greatest need, isn't there? That's correct. Uh, that's correct. And, and I try to believe that if we go by fear, we are we're going to be defeated. But at the same time, we have to have discerning and be smart. But the areas that we go, you stand there, and, either, and, and, and really the Muslims, they just start from the outside, listen about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, 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 and yet, uh, we began to feel like what happened in Paris, that the police had to come and get me out because there was too many people, and they was afraid that there's going to be uh, an attack. So there was about 40 pol- policemen, uh, men and women, and all of these things. And yes, in the middle of the altar call, then ushered me, and then took me to the hotel, and 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 then. Uh, I could not go for the, uh, for the second night and the third night. But the thing is, I'm going to go back. But I told the people, this place is too small. You're going to have a, a, a situation with people that are coming from everywhere, Chinese people that was there, that was, uh, that was from Africa, from all kinds of different countries, from, from, from Paris. And yet the place was very small. But the, the, the thing I want to tell you is there was another city that that the place holds 7,000 in the Coliseum, and you have 2,000 people outside. And you should see the way, oh my Lord. When I was driving to the Crusades, I thought that, they, that I, I said, wow, they, they have to open the door for the people to get in. No, no, I saw this beautiful family coming in, eating their sandwich. I don't know, they came for uh, two, uh, two hours driving. And they want to be in the crusades. So, so I'm touched. I'm deeply touched, and that's the reason I'm going back. It, it is, it, it is, is, is. I believe France gonna, gonna, it's gonna be the biggest surprise of all surprise for all the Western world. You know, the interesting thing there's, there's, I think, two commonalities in both your experience in France as well as Argentina. Uh, both countries have dealt with economic challenges, 
Certainly a tremendous amount of political turmoil. I mean, Argentina alone, uh, now there's a brand new president, uh, Mauricio Marci, who was just elected last year. Uh, he's had to come in as a, sort of the major head of the cleanup committee to try to deal with the, the economic and political uh, disaster that Argentina has become over recent years. Um, that, coupled with what we've seen of not only the spread of, of secular humanism in France for so long, but most recently the influx of the influence of Islam. And, and the the attending violence to all of that. Both of these cases would seem to me um, that, Nikki, it has led to a tremendous sense of hunger. The people look at all of this and they say, my goodness, my, my life has become nothing. These young people in particular feel as if they have no future because of what's happening in their nations economically and politically. I wonder if, to a certain degree, we're even seeing the stage set here for that in the United States with not only the statistics that we talked about earlier, but just looking at the, the political turmoil with the election right now. We continue to see a great sense of volatility on Wall Street. The American middle class family is being squeezed out economically. Do you think this is setting a stage here for a potential uh, sense of, of tremendous revival in America? It got to be, Craig. There's no other way. It got to be. that. I don't see other way because either we are a bunch of chickens that we cannot speak or either or we allow this progressive movement to come and try to change with all kinds of idealistic uh, uh, ways, and we, the church, just keep silent. So it either leads to tremendous revival or tremendous destruction. The judgment started in the house of the Lord. That's what the Bible says. You, you made a comment that I heard in one of your crusades in a video that I saw online in one of your crusades in, in France where you said that we as the church can no longer be passive about evangelism. What did you mean by that? That we cannot, uh, we cannot allow ourselves just to go through this life. The biggest, the biggest shame for every person that say that I'm a born again, that Christ lives in my heart. And that person never, never give a birth to another person. That is the biggest shame that can happen. We got to take it. We got to start witnessing for Jesus Christ. To, uh, that's this thing that you cannot, you cannot talk about Jesus in, in your working place and in all this, in these areas. I do believe, I do believe that this is United States of America. I do believe that the, in the way that this country was built and the way that we believe in God, in Christ, we have to be conscious that we cannot allow anybody from another country to tell us how to live our life because, because that's the way it is. If you go to those countries in the Middle East and all those areas, yes, if you talk about Jesus, then chop your head off. But they can come over here, and they can go ahead, and they can, uh, this is America, this is free. And that's, that, that's the way it is. Well, we're going to have to come to a place in our lives that when violence began to take over because in the name of religion, did you have heard anybody uh, that have chopped somebody hurt in the name of Jesus Christ? Yeah, this certainly not. That this is, and then the young people, the, they're so vulnerable so vulnerable, and I think we have been victimized by, by one of the, the, the most advanced technology that, that 
what is tend to be good, it can end up to be evil. And we have to have control on that because there's too many things, too many dirty things. This is the most uh, disgusting election that I ever have been in my life. This is when our nation is wounded and we need leadership. We, with the, what I feel is that who can be the, our new president? Who can have the heart to, for our, our nation, for our people? And where is the church in this, in this moment? Uh, we are going to walk into the prophetic area of time when we going to believe a revival just like happened in the book of Acts, or we're going to be silent. Uh, that's, that's what I feel, Craig. I feel that with all my heart. And I believe that you can be a witness any place that you go with your life. Uh, every, I bring people to Jesus, in, in, in the captain, in, in, in 32,000 feet. I have watched this captain cry like a baby, holding my hands, and asking Jesus to come into his heart. Just because he found out that I was in the airplane, and he, he said, my wife have read your book and all of this, and the cross and Swiss play, I'm wrong, baby, wrong. Is this is the, the real Nicky Cruz? I said, yes. And I, yes, Jesus changed me. And in five minutes, I talked to that man about Jesus. And you know what? It was so moving that the that he sent the co-pilot, and the co-pilot got converted too, it, it, right there on the air. This, Jesus is everywhere. Let's take him. Let's take him to the place that he belongs. Nicky Cruz with us today. We're um, visiting, talking about not only his recent crusades in Argentina and in France, but as well his upcoming visit to the San Francisco Bay Area. He'll be at Christian Cathedral on Coolidge Avenue in Oakland. That's Thursday, April the 21st at 7 p.m. And then that's Sunday at Victory Outreach in Hayward. That'll be Sunday, April the 24th at 1 p.m. Details on Nicky's website at NickyCruz.org. That's NickyCruz.org. Or you can also check out Victory Outreach's website at VO Oakland. Think of Victory Outreach, VOOakland.org. A brief time out. Back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. Our special guest today on this edition of Lifeline is evangelist Nikki Cruz. He, of course, the subject of the wildly famous book, The Cross and the Switchblade, also author of Run, Baby, Run, which has been translated into more than 40 languages worldwide. Nikki just recently returned from unbelievably massive crusades all across Argentina in December of last year. And then, of course, earlier, uh, a visit that crisscrossed some 17 different venues in France. And, of course, um, once again, we've seen uh, Europe in the news in the wake of the horrific Islamic uh, terrorist attacks in Brussels. And that growing sense that while there is perhaps less attention being paid to the traditional church, particularly amongst young people, um, it doesn't mean that there's not hunger out there. In fact, some of these false teachings and false religions like Islam uh, are attracting young people, I think, uh, Nikki, because there's a sense of frustration out there. People are looking for something real. They're looking for something that they can call home or feel like they're a part of. In some ways, it's probably not all that different than what you experienced on the streets of Brooklyn when you were a teenager. Uh, Brooklyn, for you, for many years was home. And I guess in, in, a, in a real sense, many of your fellow gang members were like a substitute family, weren't they? Yes, but I remember that 
At that time, we were the pioneers of the gangs. We were living in a war zone. This was no, uh, there was a teenager, we were killing one another. The, the, the street was, uh, the sidewalk was full of blood of young people killing one another. And I was part of, the, of, of that kind of uh, ugly revolution. And, and it took a, a skinny preacher by the name of Wilker, Dave Wilkerson to break through to a place that it was so dangerous that the police warned Dave Wilkerson, don't go over there, they're going to kill him. That place is so dangerous that Dracula and Frankenstein were so afraid to walk in, in that neighborhood. <laughs> and yet here is this a skinny preacher came and just demons start tremble. I am not fanatic. I'm very conservative in a way of, of speaking in my area. But I do believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I do believe that Wilkerson was under the power of the Holy Ghost. He was with, with one of the greatest things that is the science of the preachers, uh, like you said, Greg, in the radio, and you minister, that the boldness that these men have after I slap him, I spit at him, and I send him to hell, and I call him every name in the X book, and that man say words that only had to be the Holy Spirit, had to be designed by the Holy Spirit because he didn't have it. He told me right there, I got a message for you, Nikki. I came here to tell you that Jesus Christ loves you. And that's when I spit at him and I push him against the wall, and he was shaking, but at the same time, Right in my very, very eyes, these men have changed so rapidly, and boldness came over him. And you know what he told me? He screamed, and there were 300 people there. Kill me. Kill me. I said, what's the matter with this guy? Go ahead. Is that going to make you feel good in front of these people? And I know you can do it. Go ahead and kill me. You can kill me, Nikki, and cut me in thousand pieces, and you can throw them right there on the streets. But remember, every little piece is going to cry now that Jesus loves you. And I tell you, Craig, that is the message that we miss in the boldness of the Holy Spirit to witness for Jesus Christ. And don't be afraid that the Lord is going to be right there when demons have to be trembled, because the holiness of Christ is above everything that you can imagine. For that to happen, is it important, in your opinion, for the church to return to its first love? I mean, we, we even see in Scripture this sense yeah. that the church oftentimes, I mean, individual believers, we, we, we've grown cold, uh, we're not as enthusiastic about God's Word as we once were, we don't pray like we once did, there's the sense, perhaps, that discipleship is is not as important to the church, and I wonder if the, the, the lack of boldness in the church today is because we've grown cold against the Lord. It is. It's, it's, I, I, I don't know how you can see it, Craig, because I like you, but I'm a straight, remember? I love you, but I'm a straight. Because uh, today we cannot say to another person, I love you in Christ. But yes, you 110% right. The situation got to be that we are, we are complacent with, 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 with ourselves. We don't see Bijan. We 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 just some way somehow uh, we have been bombarded by so many theology, new theology that God never heard about it. And when you began to see this, 
uh, people are fascinating. There's some people that are vulnerable, vulnerable for anything. But when you be gullible, that is the science of a stupidity. I believe that what we have to do, be vulnerable for the Holy Spirit, especially for a sinner. You've got to be vulnerable for, for Jesus to touch your heart. That's what happened to me. And just being a rebel, the Holy Spirit was so strong in that place that I became vulnerable. And then from being vulnerable, I became like a little boy crying out to Jesus to help me, to forgive me, hugging my girlfriend. And there about 25 guys and a girlfriend. That was nothing but a valley of tears. There was moaning and groaning with pain because the abuse that I was abused and I was a little boy, the girls that had been abused, the drugs that was all over, the killing that was in the street. So this, the only way out is somebody who comes with the gospel of Jesus Christ and take it right there into the street. And that's what Wilkerson did. And that's what we're going to do in, uh, in this summer in Milwaukee. Uh, we're going to bombard the whole, uh, the, the whole city of Milwaukee. And the, the, the governor is going to be one of the co-chairmen. And uh, the other lady, uh, she's, she's, she's the one that, that is close to the governor. The, if you watch the television, the, the sheriff from Milwaukee is involved. We're going to hit the street. We're going to go out to the dangerous area, and we're going to go all over from New York, Milwaukee, San Francisco, Detroit. We're going to go to Cleveland. We're going to go and do. I have a few years to live in this, but I'm going to, I'm going to die on my standing on my feet. Amen. Go out in a blaze, as they say. And in a blaze, man. <laughs> That's the only way to go. We are thrilled also that, Nikki, you're going to be coming to the San Francisco Bay Area. Again, I want to remind listeners that Nikki Cruz will be here in the Bay Area Thursday, April the 21st at 7 p.m. He'll be speaking at Christian Cathedral. That's at 2433 Coolidge Avenue in Oakland. And then on Sunday, April the 24th at 1 p.m. at Victory Outreach of Hayward. Complete details available on Nikki's website at NikkiCruz.org. That's NikkiCruz.org. Nikki, we sure appreciate the time. I am thrilled for the good report of uh, what you're seeing God do firsthand in both France and in Argentina, and I think much to be encouraged about here in America. And it's an important call, as you say, for, for the church to get serious again, not only about our, our relationship with Christ, but to be bold in the proclamation of the good news of the gospel, because after all, there is a lost and dying world that's just out there searching for answers, and it's the duty, it's the responsibility of we as the church to get out there and share those answers with the lost and dying world, isn't it? And let me say one thing. My the Lord, Jesus Christ, bless Lifeline and bless the greatest men of the radio interview. Craig Robert. I have done so many interviews, but you was total accurate in your statements. And I and I pray that your ministry will go beyond, because it's the Holy Spirit who's going to take you. 
Well, God bless you, Nikki. I appreciate the kind words. And again, I want to remind listeners to mark your calendars. Nikki Cruz coming to the San Francisco Bay Area. Two dates, Thursday, April the 21st in Oakland at Christian Cathedral, and then Sunday, April the 24th at Victory Outreach of Hayward. Details on the web at Victory Outreach's website, vooakland.org, or Nikki Cruz's website at nikkicruz.org. That's nikkicruz.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. At 36 years old, most physicians are just getting up to serious full speed in their medical careers, carving out a niche, perhaps making a name for themselves, and doing what they are passionate about, what they train so hard for, healing patients and making their physical lives better. But at the age of 36, Yale and Stanford University graduate and trained neurosurgeon Dr. Paul Kalanithi his focus in life suddenly shifted from a focus of building a career and building a family to questions about his own mortality, having been diagnosed, unexpectedly so, with lung cancer, stage four lung cancer. Through the process of dealing with this, many questions were raised. One of the issues that Paul has left as a gift for not only his own family, but frankly for all of us, that at one time or another, at some point in life, we'll face questions of our own mortality, is a gift left behind of his experiences, his observations, his feelings, detailed in a new book called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. Joining me now is Dr. Kalanithi's wife, Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, who, by the way, is a clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford School of Medicine. And Dr. Lucy, great to have you on the program. Program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You know, your story reads like one of those amazing love affairs. The two of you, I believe, met uh, when you were first-year medical students back at Yale University, and you followed your lives and careers and marriage to uh, wind up here on the West Coast and finishing up your studies at Stanford University. And by all accounts, this was sort of, um, well, what do we call it, a, a fairy book kind of a relationship, wasn't it? Um. Yeah, in my mind, um, uh, I feel so lucky to have been married to Paul. And it's, it's funny because you described that sequence of events. And I look back and, you know, a year ago, three years ago, he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and he was 36. Two years ago, we were having our baby shower. A year ago, he had just died. And now his book is out and it's being translated into almost 40 languages. And it's just like the course of things that you just never know what's going to happen in your life. And so looking back over those years, you know, meeting him 13 years ago and then up until now when he's not with us, but he's written this book and we have a daughter growing, it's, um, it's really, um, you know, it's life. This book, let's talk about some of his motivations. First off, for the benefit of listeners, put some things in perspective for us. So, as we mentioned, um, he had wrapped up his studies at Stanford University um, and was beginning, literally beginning his career as a neurosurgeon. What led to the diagnosis of stage four lung cancer? So, he was diagnosed in May of 2013, and starting around Christmas, the year before, he'd started to develop some back pain that was kind of unexplained. And then in between Christmas and the spring of the next year, he started losing weight, um, you know, without really knowing why. And then he started to have night sweats and a cough. And it's funny because we were both doctors, so we were kind of worried about these symptoms. But at the same time, he was working as a 
um, neurosurgery resident, a chief resident at Stanford. And, you know, he was on his feet for 14 hours a day and doing brain surgery. And, you know, he would skip lunch or eat a Snickers bar for lunch. And so to have some of those aches and to lose a bit of weight when you're working that hard, initially we didn't, we didn't realize what it was. And then finally, um, we had the, the diagnosis that he had metastatic cancer and he probably only had a few years to live. And so, at that point, the, the book he wrote and the um, task of that time was to try to make sense of, um, as, a, as a young doctor and as a lover of literature who had also studied philosophy, like how you put together all you know intellectually and philosophically about mortality and then facing it in a real and emotional way, um, what do you do with that? And so he wrote this book as a way to make sense of it and to share it with readers. It's interesting because your experience, I think, tracks what most of us would think at that age. Well, this certainly can't be anything serious. I mean, maybe a right. little bit worn out, needs perhaps some some time off, uh, you know, maybe a little bit on the lethargic side because of working such long hours. I mean, this is the experience of every physician, to be sure. And I think no one, even with the both of you, with backgrounds in medicine from very prestigious schools, I would imagine would have thought that this could have been anything more severe than just kind of feeling under the weather right it's just so rare um uh exactly and then you know a, a little while before the diagnosis we started to um suspect it and that was when he um you know uh, really started getting it checked out and then soon the diagnosis came lucy what was this like for you when the diagnosis came you're both physicians so you understand not only all of the terminology, but the ramifications of the terminology. And you're, you're suddenly, you, you have to have felt, at least in those initial moments, like, number one, this can't be happening. And number two, how is this possible? You guys are just getting your careers and, and lives together started. You haven't even begun to, to, to start your own family. And suddenly this diagnosis, it's not just lung cancer, it's stage four lung right. cancer. What was your reaction right. like? Yeah, you're summing it up pretty well. Um, it's it was this really profound and painful moment where um, we had we Paul got admitted to Stanford Hospital um, to get you know expedited workup and and quick investigation of what was going on. And he went down to the CT scanner and then he was wheeled back into the hospital room. And no one was in the room. The two of us were in the room. And because he was a physician at Stanford, he went over to the computer and he typed his own name in and he pulled up the CAT scan images. And so he describes this at the beginning of the book, the feeling of looking through those pictures of, you know, somebody's organs and seeing cancer throughout the lungs and the bones and knowing it's your own body that you're looking at. And so he's standing there with me, his wife, um, and we just sort of, nobody was giving us the news in like a little kind, gentle dribble. It was like the two of us together looking out of our own eyes and then being doctors, we knew that this was a terminal illness. So it just sort of hit us all, hit us all at once. Um, and then luckily, I think we skipped over the phase of thinking, why me? How could this happen? Um, you know, why us? Because we've seen it happen to so many people. This kind of thing happened to so many people. Um, you know, he was a brain surgeon, and so he was familiar with head trauma and aneurysms and tumors. And then the immediate thing we both thought was, you know, now it's our turn. It's our turn to enter into this um, this kind of challenging experience. And what a curiosity that I think we all tend to 
ask those sorts of questions. Uh, having dealt with this uh, issue of uh, cancer myself in my own life, uh, the initial question of why me, I think, is is very normal. It's very human. But then it maybe even begs a bigger question. Why not me? I mean, it happens. Uh, that's right. So Exactly. Paul, exactly. Paul wrote that in the book and said, yeah, the answer would be why not me, you know? So once you get over the the initial shock, was there? Did you go through feelings of anger? That that sense of of this this young relationship you'd known each other uh, barely a decade at that point. That that all of a sudden this the love of your life was going to be ripped from you. I mean, certainly the the seriousness of the fact that the cancer had metastasized, was already at stage four at the point of the diagnosis. I mean, you had to have known that the clock was going to be ticking very soon. What was your reaction to that? Yeah, that's right. We didn't feel particularly angry. I think for me, the main emotions I had were, um, you know, painful emotions like sadness and anxiety. Um, And then sort of the, the real task... We were really in love. We really knew how much we were going to need each other and wanted to take care of each other. And then, you know, we we certainly had these um, like real disorientation and a shift in his identity. You know, like you were describing, he Paul um, as a young neurosurgeon had this whole career mapped out in his mind about being a neurosurgeon and a scientist and maybe a writer down the line because he loved literature and writing. But suddenly, with only a few years left. Um, your whole identity just changes completely and you have to make sense of a whole new world and set of circumstances. And I think other people who are facing a serious or terminal illness can relate to that idea. Um, and so writing ultimately became the, the big purpose for him, the way for him to cope and the way for him to communicate and feel connected and uh, purposeful. And there are layers of complexity here because not only is there the sense of, okay, time is suddenly short. We thought we had our whole lives together. Suddenly there's now a, an expiration date that we can see. So you have to contend with the implications of that on your relationship and outlook on life. And then you, you point out something I think that, that uh, perhaps few of us think about that physicians have to deal with, and that is that you might spend a career, a lifetime uh, caring for patients, and you're used to the physician-patient relationship. Uh, you're the one who's giving the, the diagnosis or prescribing the treatment, or in your husband Paul's case, uh, you know, performing the surgery on the patient, and suddenly the roles have been significantly switched. He goes from being Dr. Paul, the physician, to patient Paul. And as much as I would imagine, some might say, well, gee, uh, all of the advantages because of his medical training and background, there's things that he will understand and be able to comprehend that, that the un, uh, uninitiated, uh, you know, average patient out there who's, who's, you know, spent no more time in the medical journals than, you know, occasionally happening on WebMD has no clue of what's transpiring. But I would imagine there are ways in which perhaps, Lucy, his background in medicine and the fact that he's suddenly gone from being physician Paul to patient Paul must have had some ups and some downs to it. Yes, that's right. Just as far as the experience of being doctors, it was sort of the best and worst thing um, for us because you're exactly right. We knew we knew how to use the medical system and we understood what was happening and we knew the prognosis, which is, you know, really painful but helpful at the same time. It helped us make decisions like whether or not to have a baby. And then I, as his caregiver, knew all the medications and how to use them and what the side effects were. I mean, there were a lot of stresses that many families have that our knowledge helps us 
um, get around, which I'm really grateful for. And then another thing I'm really grateful for is the other thing you just asked about, which is switching from the experience of being a doctor to the experience of being a patient, being on the other side of that relationship. So for both of us as doctors, um, it gave me such a depth of understanding of the degree to which, even if you have the knowledge, um, the the um, existential and um, uh, experiential and care and empathy that all the all that stuff that your doctor provides you, we were so hungry for it, and it just helped really enrich my understanding of how deep and supportive that relationship can be. Um, if you're lucky, it was. Um, Paul's dependence on his doctor was much more than I would have expected from a young male neurosurgeon, you know, but he, he really was emotionally dependent on his doctor in a way that I thought was really profound and interesting to see. And it's helped shape my own, own practice as a doctor and understanding of that relationship. Dr. Lucy Kalanithi with us today. We're talking about a new book just newly released by Random House called When Breath Becomes Air. It is a New York Times bestseller written by her husband, Dr. Paul Kalanithi. And we're talking about their experiences following the diagnosis at the age of 36 of stage four lung cancer. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Craig Roberts along with a very special guest today. She is Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. Her husband, Paul, the author of a new book called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. This is a New York Times best-selling book that details the observations and life experiences and in many ways, I think, sets down a legacy by her husband, Dr. Paul Kalanithi, as he was diagnosed with stage four terminal lung cancer at the very young age of 36 and, and, and very new into his career as a physician. Let's talk about his decision to start journaling and, and begin compiling what eventually would become When Breath Becomes Air. You mentioned about his, his background and love for literature. Was this one of those bucket list types of things, Lucy, where he, he had a book in him that had to come out, or was there, was there more to it than this? Was it in part maybe coping with the day-to-day experience of going through chemotherapy and all that attends to a stage four um, cancer diagnosis, along with wanting to, I, I would imagine, leave a legacy behind for you and eventually your daughter? Um, yes, exactly. All of those things. It's wild because if you'd asked him when he was a teenager what he'd be when he grew up, he definitely would have said, I'm going to be a writer. And then he surprised himself by going into medicine. He studied literature and philosophy and then decided to come into medicine because he was so interested in the question of what makes us human and how do we make sense of building meaning in our lives despite the fact that we will all die. And so he was trying to get at that big question by um, studying literature and then ultimately becoming a neurosurgeon and thinking about neuroscience. Um, and uh, then the writing of the book, it's, it was so fortuitous and amazing the way it happened. He became, he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer when he was 36, just starting his neurosurgical career. And then he wrote a little essay called How Long Have I Got Left that um, he sent it to a friend for comments. And it was almost like a little journal essay about coping with uncertainty and making sense of um you know, how I, I know I'm dying, but even still, I don't know how much time I have left. And um, his friend forwarded it straight to the op-ed desk at the New York Times, and they published it almost verbatim. And Paul had this huge response from it where for a while he was getting an email a minute, um, just a real um, 
positive experience hearing from doctors and patients and ultimately quickly from that essay came a book deal Mm. um uh and then it was sort of a it was a journal like you described he was writing the manuscript to help him cope in real time very intimate he wrote down things that were more intimate than he could say out loud to me so me reading the manuscript as he was writing it was actually a really powerful part of what was happening in our marriage as he was ill and then he knew that it would be a legacy for our daughter and his real purpose was um, not just a journal or a private document, but um, really helping bring the reader into what it feels like to face mortality um, in a very personal way. And at the same time, he's reflecting back on philosophy and literature and his experiences in medicine. So it's sort of a mix of his whole, um, everything he'd learned to that point, and he's trying to he's trying to give it as a gift or something to share. What's amazing about this is is you get the sense, perhaps, that he's working through a lot of the big questions that, quite frankly, all of us will eventually have to work through or at least be confronted by. It, it, it might be uh, debatable as to how many people work through it. I, I, I think that perhaps some people work their way through the entirety of life, and, and as they begin to face uh, the, the end chapter, don't really think through uh, uh, has my life been meaningful and 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 how do we make uh, a sense of, of of meaning and purpose in life even in the face of things that we cannot control and in some cases are are very unwelcome at least early on and that is death like in the case of of Paul who was facing his mortality in an age probably uh, a third of what is is normal for most people these days based on longevity tables and then too to leave that that experience, those observations, those feelings behind in a in a permanent document that not only would share his own insights into this question of what does all of this mean, but then too to leave that behind as a gift for you and for your daughter. As you read through the journal in preparation for bringing this book to publication, were there things that surprised you? Um. Uh, kind of. So, I, as I mentioned, he was writing it, um, sort of a central piece of the last year of his life was the experience of writing the book. And, and I was really helping, you know, we timed his um, chemo around it and we adjusted his medication so he could concentrate or sit for long periods of time. You know, the, the process of um, being ill with cancer, as you know, is, um, isn't easy. And he's trying to write during that. And so, as he was writing, I was reading, you know, what was coming out on the page about his experience. And there are a couple of different things, like he wrote about a rocky patch we went through in our marriage. He writes about that right at the beginning of the book. And then um, he writes about how we wrestled with the decision of whether we should have a baby despite his illness. And, um, you know, he was writing about these really intimate things. And I thought, you know, should I, should I ask him to tone it down or take them out or whatever? And then I was like, you know, if I were a reader, those are the parts I would love. I would love the parts that were real and authentic. And the book is quite intimate and detailed and raw um and i think that's partly why people are responding to it sort of unflinching and really honest and um and it's his story i I wasn't going to ask him to change his story so it did surprise me how um uh sort of intimate the types of intimate things he shared but i actually think that was a really wise decision and it turned out to be really positive including for me um you know it, it is helping me have intimate conversations with other people based on what Paul shared about our experience. Well, in so many ways, it is a gift that many people, quite frankly, Lucy, will never experience. Uh, they will meet, fall in love, build a family, have a relationship, spend a lifetime together, and then once death takes one of the two uh, individuals in that marriage relationship, there are a lot of memories left behind. There are some wonderful photographs, but to have a permanent document uh, 
uh, that details the thought process and observations and life experiences that that can go on even to serve as a guide for your daughter in years to come is is an incredibly rare and I think precious gift. And the other thing too that you talk about in the um, um, the epilogue to this new book, which again for listeners is When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House, uh, written by Dr. Paul Catalani. Uh, for you in, in this process, you talk about much of what you've learned in terms of going through grief, what that means, how that nobody can really dictate to you how to grieve or what that process looks like or the timetable. And the other thing that you said that that really struck me, you talk about this notion and you at one point quote C.S. Lewis, the death in and of itself in a relationship is not the end. And so often a lot of people say, well, now that my husband is gone, my wife is gone, it's over. And it the reality is it's not it's not the end it's just a different phase of love uh, elaborate on that oh i love that quote so much he um c.s lewis writes that in um a grief observed and he, he says exactly that bereavement is not the truncation of married love but one of its regular phases and that i just gasped as i read it because i felt that way i felt after paul dies i still love him just the same way i loved him even if i get remarried in the future I will still love Paul forever. You know, he's still, um, you know, part of my family and my life experience. And then the um, the process of shepherding his manuscript for the book, When Breath Becomes Air, into the real book, and then helping Random House choose the cover and writing the epilogue about how Paul died and reflecting on Paul. Those experiences feel, they literally make me feel as if Paul and I are still a team, um, still working on this book, and you know, like I'm still doing something to help Paul about his life it's really interesting it's um i knew i would feel sad and anxious after he died and i have but i didn't realize that those same feelings of love and um, commitment would continue just the same and they have i wrote a i wrote an essay in the new york times called my marriage didn't end when i became a widow and it's about it's about that exact idea and i think i've had a lot of people tell me that they can relate to that idea about grief your your young daughter was too young to to really perhaps remember much about her father, but as she grows older and goes from being a little girl into a young lady, uh, this this is a book that can serve and guide her well, isn't it? I hope so. It's really my pride possession, and I'm I'm I can't wait until she can read it. Um, the takeaway. For, for listeners, and we've talked about a lot of the topics here today, Lucy, uh, gone from the shock of a terminal diagnosis at a young age to what it means in terms of the impact on a relationship to trying to think through uh, suddenly facing these questions of eternity at a very early age or a young age and then wrestling with the questions of meaning of life and the legacy that we would hope to leave behind, the impact of our, of our presence, so to speak, having been here on Earth. In, in terms of the big takeaway, if there's any one thing that you would hope the readers can really extract from Paul's book, what would it be? You know, the book, he's writing it, as you know, from the perspective of a neurosurgeon and a lover of literature and a terminally ill man. And he's talking about facing mortality. And the thing he wanted to share is, you know, as, you, as you're dying and as you're living, um, how do you wrestle with your own values and then create a life that's built around those values and that's truly meaningful um uh you know and it's <laughs> i keep being afraid you know people will ask me so what so what is the meaning of life and what is when rest becomes there say about that and i think partly it's the struggle to find meaning that is the meaning um and that's a 
sort of what he gets deep into. Those were ultimately questions, of course, that we can only answer for ourselves. But I, I think what's remarkable about this book and both his approach and the effort that you've made in in making his dream as a published author uh, come to fruition and leaving that legacy behind, not just for yourself and your daughter, but for all of us, and that is right. to also paint a picture. We we often hear, especially at, at uh, eulogies, about how well somebody lived and what a class act that they were in life, and yet it is rare that we get a glimpse into uh, the process of how well somebody can die and what it means to to die with grace and and what that picture looks like that's a part of life that that you know we don't understand a lot about we spend uh, oftentimes a lot of energy in trying to avoid that and yet learning how to to make the the final moments of life have as much significance and value and leave behind as much legacy at the end as we do throughout the years on earth i think is so incredibly important and what makes this particular book so special and so unique the book again is called when breath becomes air newly published by Random House. It is the story of Dr. Paul Cathalani, and we appreciate, uh, Dr. Lucy, you spending some time with us today to share your story. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I'll remind listeners, the book is available through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get it on the website for Dr. Paul Cathalani. Let me spell the name for you. It's Paul, P-A-U-L-K-A-L-A-N-I-T-E. H-I. And if you just Google When Breath Becomes Air, you'll be able to find the website. Our thanks again to Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine, for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.